Good evening to you all. It's been a very energetic day, hasn't it? So, how's it going? Is it like uh, what you thought it was going to be? Probably not. Just guessing. Last night, uh, Jack gave a very lovely and inspirational talk. And uh, we were talking about it at the teacher meeting. And the topic was who was going to follow Jack's talk? And so we drew straws, and I got the short one. But, you know, that's okay. Sometimes it's pleasant, and sometimes it's not. So... Jack mentioned last night that the theme of this retreat from the teaching perspective is the paramis, the perfections of heart. And tonight I'm going to take up the topic of effort. Effort. But first, if you're you're willing to explore this topic with me a little bit, I'd like to ask you what associations you have with the word effort. When somebody says to you, you should make effort or you should make, uh, apply effort or you aren't making enough effort or you need to, what are your associations with this word effort or being enjoined to effort? Hard? Negative? You don't want to do hard work, forced, striving. What was that? Mm-hmm. Complacent, unpleasant, unpleasant. Good effort, consolation prize. <laughs> Good effort when you miss the ball. Well, there's something in that, though. It's acknowledging that an, an authentic attempt was made, right? And that, that's an important piece. Yeah. Applying strength. Force. Does that come up for people? Forcing. Discipline. Continuity. Potential failure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fear of failure. A for effort. A for effort. That's what you get when your other marks are bad, right? Is A for effort. You can find concentration and effort sometimes, and it can be fun and pleasant. So I, I wanted to. To uh, ask you to do this little association 
for me because I have the idea from watching my own mind and uh, listening to people who are practicing over time that many of the associations that we have with effort are very much shaped by our personal and cultural overlay. And for many of us in in the West, um, hard charging is is the way to go for many people uh, uh, in the Northern European countries. You know, make strong effort. That's a big thing. You have to try really hard and make it happen. For many people in, in Asian cultures uh, or people whose, whose families are, are striving, you have to take advantage of opportunity. You really want to get in there. You want to be on top of it. Um, right. So many of us have this, this conditioning, either coming from the mainstream culture, coming from our personal uh, culture and heritage, or coming from our families that we have an embedded idea of we got to really, 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 really try hard. And I want to do some examination of of what kind of effort is being called for and uh, some clarification because this is a, a major point in the Buddha's teachings because he talks over and over and over again about the important of making effort, of really applying the mind. So what's your understanding of what you're actually being asked to do when you make effort in this context? Diligence to do what? Keep going. Yep. Observing. Focus. Sitting. Show up. Practice. Pay attention. Discipline. And what does it mean? Discipline. Doing it when you, eat, when you don't want to. Can you do it when you want to? Yeah, then it's effortless. So, if I was going to say what kind of effort's being called for here, I, I would say it was so, something like it's the effort to direct our attention in a specific way towards whatever is known in the present moment and to maintain that mindful awareness. So all of the instructions that we're giving you in the morning are all about helping you to remember what the primary task is, both in the walking and sitting meditations and in daily activities. So what we're really about here is training the mind to learn how to meet its direct, immediate experience in a wise kind of way. 
So when we speak to you, we're asking you to use whatever current freedom of mind you have, and by that I mean whatever current capacity you have to actually focus your mind in a particular way, and to take that existing capacity and extend it to a broader and broader range of experience. So, in a certain kind of way, this is really a simple thing that we're asking you to do. So, it's so simple that it's really hard. Because we aren't used to staying in present tense awareness, and our habits of mind, our usual way that the mind functions is, is very different. and um, So we keep forgetting what we're supposed to be doing or maybe we re- remember we're supposed to be doing it but it's gotten to be a chore or it's gotten to be overwhelming or something else seems more pleasant or we kind of like space out what the, what the mission actually is. And then we revert to... Uh, the condition pattern of mind that's more habitual for us where we're kind of all over the place. The mind doesn't really know what is going on. It's bouncing around from the past uh, to the present. It's in thoughts and it's in fantasies and it's in memories and it's in uh, thought fragments and flights of imagination and all the rest of it. So in practice, we actually come face to face with very deeply conditioned tendencies especially the tendency to get lost in uh, thoughts and emotions and to actually be out of contact with what is immediately present. And and because this conditioning is so deep, it's really easy to get impatient with the learning curve or forget what it is we're actually doing. So let me talk for a few minutes about the big picture of effort and, and how, uh, how it fits into the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha's path to liberation is described as the eightfold path, where he basically says, this is the method. If you want to liberate your mind, uh, This is the context in which you need to make effort, and these are the things that you need to do. And what's called wise or right effort is actually the step number six in the Eightfold Path. And it's part of the last part of the Buddha's path, uh, followed by wise mindfulness and then wise concentration. And if you know or uh, would like to know how liberation is actually attained, you'll understand that it's through wisdom that the mind becomes liberated, through understanding, through a certain kind of grounded, down-to-the-bone, down-to-the-root, through-and-through, understanding and clear seeing beyond a shadow of a doubt of how suffering is created and how it's released. But in order to 
get that kind of understanding, to really have that land in the system in a transformative way, we have to have the capacity for clear seeing. Because we learn this understanding, we learn this insight for ourselves through ongoing connection with our direct, immediate experience. So wisdom is what liberates us from the delusion causing suffering. And in order to have that sustained capacity for deep seeing, which is wise concentration, there needs to be wise mindfulness. Mindfulness needs to be very well established. And for wise mindfulness to be present, there needs to have been and be wise effort. So the effort that's being called for is around the establishment of mindfulness and the cultivation of what are called wholesome states of mind, states of mind that lead in the direction of liberation and freedom. So a particular kind of wholesome energy is being called for in this practice of the Eightfold Path. So if we were going to say, well, what is wise effort directed to? The Buddha answers that by basically saying, well, there's four things that you're, you're making effort and uh, respect uh, of. And one is, the first thing, is to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. That's a double negative. Right. Which you could translate as, uh, don't get yourself in trouble. Okay. And when uh, the Buddha is talking about unwholesome states, what he means is uh, defilements of, of the mind, forms of greed, hatred, and delusion that come uh, uh, from ignorance and which flow from them are expressions of ignorance. So these are all variations on a theme. So how do you do this? How do you... Uh, prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. In other words, block them out. Well, the practice of sila, or basic morality, is, is one thing that can really help with that. And then there's what's called uh, sense restraint, which is basically has to do with uh, not letting your mind just run wild and do whatever it wants to uh, without any adult supervision. And then the third method is maintaining strong and continuous mindfulness which suppresses unwholesome states. So it's a really interesting thing on retreat, especially if you have the opportunity to do long retreat. The first time the mind discovers that if mindfulness is really strong and continuous and well-established, a lot of the difficult states of mind stop happening. And the mind can go through periods where things are, are lucid, there's a lot of buoyancy in the mind, uh, there's peace, there's tranquility, there's joy, there's, there's interest, there's equanimity, all these wholesome states are there uh, when the unwholesome ones are not present. 
but of course maintaining continuous strong mindfulness well good luck with that right because it's not as if you can just say I'm going to be mindful baby I'm turning it on and leaving it on all day because it just doesn't work like that right So then you have the second of the tasks that require wise effort to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. To abandon them. Makes them sound like orphans. And what's really being said there is to not move into them with identification not to be lost in them and not to operate from them. And this territory, this practicing wise effort in relationship to these unwholesome states that are already there is the practice territory of what are called the hindrances. How many people have heard about the hindrances? Okay, so maybe about a third. Well, They may know about the hindrances, but you're experiencing them. (laughs) So we all have them. We all have these states. And, you know, if you're going to describe uh, what they are, they're basically offshoots of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so they obscure the natural clarity and radiance of the mind and weaken it, weaken awareness itself. So it makes it difficult to see and observe moment to moment experience so there can be a loss of awareness a loss of mindfulness when these states are present then losing uh, wise mindfulness we lose uh, the basis for wise concentration so almost I would say 75% of meditation practice takes place in this area, in the early stages of practice, in learning how to meet unwholesome states. So if you're, you're wondering whether you're unique in having states of craving or greed or states of anger or fear or uh, depression or uh, sleepiness or uh, feelings of laziness or... or uh, restlessness and worry or doubt uh, come up as part of this process welcome to the human mind and these very states are examples of um, what the path is designed to ultimately uproot because we as human beings spend a lot of time dwelling in these states being overtaken by these states, suffering in regard to these states. Isn't it true that a lot of this floats through our mind? So uh, if we're going to have a slogan in relationship to this, we'd say, uh, don't cling to suffering when it arises. So if we wanted to restore a liberating viewpoint when these states are present, Basically, what we're aiming at is restoring mindfulness in relationship to them. That's the primary strategy. 
So instead of thinking when these states are present that there's something wrong and that you've screwed up in uh, a permanent fashion or that you're a helpless, hopeless yogi or whatever else comes up for you when these states are present, you can instead realize that this is the truth of the present moment, that the teachers are yammering on about when they tell you, stay in touch with the the present moment and open to it in a receptive, allowing, kind, and compassionate way. They're talking about this stuff too. Right? They're not just talking about the sensations of the breath. They're talking about these states also. And this is working in this area, working in this state, is really where you're going to learn the art of meditation. And it is an art. So as I said, in regard to these states, the primary task is to restore mindfulness. And there are a number of different techniques. There are individual techniques for each one of these states. But they all involve knowing, knowing it, being able to recognize it, not taking it personally. That's a, a really tough one, right? Not taking it personally, seeing it as a, a meditation object that the mind can actually turn towards. And opening, opening to it in uh, an investigative way. And I want to talk a little bit about investigation, this particular factor of mind, because it's a key factor uh, in the development of, of the mind. It follows in the seven factors of awakening. It follows mindfulness, which is first. And what's investigation? What are they talking about when they say investigation? Well, you might have noticed in the interviews that that you've had, at least some of the people that uh, have been in my groups, somebody will describe some, say that something's happening, and I'll say back to them, uh, "How do you, something like how do how do you know that, or <clears throat> what is that like?" Uh, where, where do you feel that? Is that a body sensation? Um, is it pleasant or is it unpleasant? Does it have uh, a center to it? Does it have an edge? When you watch it, uh, what happens then? Um, are there thoughts that come with it? Uh, are they... Uh, Pleasant or unpleasant? Uh, how would you characterize that particular thought? Would you say that's judgment, or uh, w- would you say that's uh, that's blame? Uh, how long did that last? Right. So I, I'm giving you the. I, I'm asking you to describe kind of precisely what it is that you're noticing. And the reason I'm I'm doing that is to get a better idea of what you're actually experiencing. So I might offer helpful uh, advice. But I'm also kind of cluing you to 
<clears throat> how you can investigate what this and other experiences are when they're happening for you. You can ask yourself these same kinds of questions. And in the process of investigating phenomenon in that kind of way, you'll find that the mind that is busy knowing and noticing, the mind that is busy noticing, is receptive to what's actually happening in an interested way, is a mind that where there is mindfulness. Because if you're interested in knowing what it is and you're allowing it, it's it to manifest as it is, and you're knowing it, you're not fighting it. You're not resisting it. You've actually made it into a meditation object. So when you connect skillfully with unwholesome states, they weaken and decrease. So this is an area to understand you're going to do a lot of practicing here. So don't be discouraged or downhearted about it. Because this is really where you win your freedom is when you learn how to relate to your suffering. I remember I was watching uh, Bill Moyers, who is a a well-known journalist in the United States, and he was interviewing uh, uh, Premat Children. And Bill is a Baptist minister, so, you know, he's not used to some of this stuff. But he was very interested. Very interested and open-minded. But he but she, he somehow knew that she had done a long period of silent practice. And he said to her, so I see that you've done da-da-da, months of silent intensive meditation practice. What was that like? He's from Texas. What was that like? And and she thought for a couple minutes. And she said, detox. (laughs) So if you connect skillfully with these states, the Dharma doors open wide the purification of the mind from its suffering and its delusion is well underway. But you have to have to proceed in a way that is not identified and doesn't make it all about you. Because if you make the arising of these states all about you, get them all bound up in some sort of story about yourself and how you are and what you're like and what you can do and what kind of person you are and you know what I mean you suffer and there's no mindfulness in it you're 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 sunk in the the deep doo-doo of identification <coughs> there's a poly term for that but <coughs> 
So here's a here's a a poem that represents the experience of of someone who has dealt with these states in an unwise fashion. So I'm offering this because, you know, we've had many fine poems. You know, Mary Oliver we've had and Gary Snyder and Hafiz and many stories from from Jack with great depth and heart. So this is called The Lament of a Discouraged Yogi. So it goes. I try to make it happen. The breath is being bad. I pull out a mental ruler and give my mind a whack. It doesn't like that feeling, and so it pushes back. It heads for sloth and torpor and takes a little nap. (laughs) And when I do awaken, self-judgment is on high. And then a flare of anger and doubts about the ride. I'm really, really trying to make it happen right. But since it isn't going well, I'm calling it a night. It isn't going to happen. This stuff is just a crock. I'll try some ayahuasca, though that can be quite rough. (laughs) I'm looking for a vision, a sign that I'm okay. I think I'll check my cell phone in case God is called today. (laughs) So, that's from the mind of a, a, a great practitioner. Now... The third of these, so we've gone through the first two, right? To prevent the arising of unskillful, unwholesome states. Then we got to the abandonment of the unwholesome states when they arise, which is all the work with the hindrances. So now we have to talk about uh, the third task, which is to arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen. So if we're going to give a slogan for this, we would say it's about wise attention makes wholesome seeds sprout. And there's a comment to be made here about the meditation instructions, which is they're really important to listen to and to wrap your mind around. Because embedded in the meditation instructions are attitudinal trainings. Basically, the instructions are designed to help you find wise relationship with what you're experiencing. They're telling you how to attend to what your immediate experience is. And that's important because all attention is not wise attention. Have you noticed that? Because we can attend to things in a way that's actually really unskillful. And how do you know that it's unskillful? Because you're suffering. Right? The suffering increases, the confusion increases, the hindrances proliferate. And that's a big clue. 
So it's a very interesting thing when you uh, hear the teaching that the establishment of mindfulness alone, the establishment of mindfulness meaning that the mind is able to carry in a fairly continuous uh, manner this particular receptive, immediate, uh, interested, allowing, kind way of relating to its immediate experience. When the mind develops that capacity and can carry that uh, from moment to moment, Mindfulness is established, and the establishment of mindfulness is the key to liberation and makes everything else possible. Because if you don't know what your mind is doing, you can't do the rest of it. You can't do any of the other practices. You can't make the discernments that that are, are necessary. The establishment of mindfulness is the first of the seven factors of awakening. These prepare the mind for actually coming to a deep understanding of how suffering is being created within the mind, by the mind. And once it sees that it's really how it, how it does that, how it hurts itself, how it gets itself screwed up at a deep enough level over and over and over again, as I said earlier, a down-to-the-bones level, a really clear uh, not to be uh, disputed, close in. That's when it knows. It knows for itself. It doesn't have to be told what it needs to do. It sees. It sees what happens when it uh, relates to things in a particular way. It's present enough to see the suffering that comes from it. And from the seeing and from the feedback that starts to happen within the system as a whole itself, the inner wisdom, which is what we truly are, is activated. It's almost as if it uh, wakes up on its own when the the obscurations, the confusions start to fall away. It starts to remember itself and to understand. So mindfulness opens and then investigation, that kind of really curious, what is it in particular energy that I was talking about earlier? And then energy itself, which supports the capacity to make further effort to be present. And then joy, and then tranquility, and then concentration, and then equanimity. That's the, the third of the wise efforts. And the fourth is to maintain and perfect wholesome states already arisen. So if we're going to sloganize that one, we'd say, wise attention is like compost. I was once going to write, write a whole Dharma talk related to composting. And... Uh, So I was online researching composting and one of the things that 
that really <laughs> struck me on a couple of levels was uh, the initial instruction, which is do not put manure directly on your garden. Okay. It has to be mixed with other things, right? It has to be aerated. Okay. We don't want to put the put the hindrances directly on the mind. If you if you bring mindfulness uh, in there and compost them, it's a very interesting thing that happens. That the very things that you were uh, suffering from become the means to your own liberation. But in any case, in respect to wholesome states already arisen. That means, hey, you find yourself having a state of metta or you find yourself having a state of uh, renunciation, letting go, or spontaneous uh, compassion. When you recognize those states, you actually strengthen their uh, place in your mind and their occurrence becomes more frequent in the mind stream. And interestingly, it can be kind of difficult to recognize wholesome states for a variety of reasons. And I find I find this particular point really interesting. Okay, so wholesome states, states of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. So we're talking about states of uh, letting go of renunciation or generosity, uh, loving kindness, compassion, uh, clarity, wisdom. How many of you notice those kinds of things when they're in your mind? Stick your hands up. Come on. You're not bragging if it's true. Okay. Well, that's really interesting because that's a distinct minority. But the fact of the matter is you would never wind up at a place like this if you didn't already have a lot of these states. Your mind just wouldn't be inclined to do anything like this. So this is a very interesting thing because what it suggests is that there's a whole part of your mind stream which is very wholesome that you're currently not in touch with. You're not recognizing these wholesome states because mindfulness is not present in regard to them. And uh, because you're not, uh, you're missing the opportunity to actually support their further development and arising. Now, some of the reasons I think it's hard to see these states or recognize them is that um, they generally don't hurt. So I'm serious, I mean, because what really gets our attention? It's things that are either intensely pleasurable or things that are like, oh, I don't want that, or get me away from that. That's a really bad one. That That's really dangerous. That really hurts, right? But the parts that uh, activate our more primal <laughs> parts of our uh, brain. 
so they don't hurt. They may not be dramatic. And I think it's because we have them so often, we're kind of used to them. We're, we're kind of habituated. They don't really register. Or we might see them as, uh, you know, no, no biggies, you know, no big deal. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know. I bought my coworker a latte. Well, you know, why not? You know, anybody would. Well, <laughs> well, maybe they would, but it's still generosity, right? Or, you know, I I uh, uh, saw that story on uh, uh, TV about uh, you know what was going on for uh, in, in South Sudan, and I just felt such, you know, I felt oh those those people. That's su- such a difficult situation there that they're in and it seems so intractable and, and I'd say well that's compassion right that's care concern that's that's meta and you go well anybody would and everybody knows that or everybody would think that or yeah. so one of the things that you could do while you're here on retreat while you're doing your noticing is to actually incline the mind to notice the presence of these wholesome states when they're there. So let's talk about what happens over time with practice in in these four, four areas. So If the mind learns how to offer wise attention in these kinds of ways, over time the mix of wholesome and unwholesome states in the mind changes. So the wholesome ones become stronger, they become more frequent, and the unwholesome ones become less frequent and weaker. So somebody once asked me what the difference was in my subjective experience from before I started practicing and uh, what it's like after practicing for a pretty long time. And I said, well, before I started practicing when I was having these difficult states arise, like the really difficult ones in relationship to something going on in life, partner problems, you know, that kind of thing. The real stuff, right? <laughs> the divorces, the, you know, or whatever, that kind of thing, right? The illnesses, the da-da-da, the, you know, disappointments and heartbreaks and all, all the rest of it. I said, back before, uh, something might last, say, for a month. And then as I continued to be practicing, like, that kind of thing might last for, like, uh, weeks. And then as I continued practicing, well, that kind of thing might last for like more like days. And then as practice went on, well, maybe that became more like hours and maybe more like minutes and then maybe becomes more like moments. So suffering starts to break up. Right? These, these deep, dense states become more fragmented 
more broken down, broken down into pieces, into component parts. And in that breaking down into component parts and fragments, they become both less painful and quicker moving. Less there to resist. So over time when difficult states are present, if you practice diligently, the mind understands how to relate to them and there's less suffering when they're present. There's less identification with them. There's less suffering. The mind recognizes them sooner. It knows how to be with them. It doesn't still like it. It's not that it things that are unpleasant uh, become pleasant. But they're not problematic in the same kind of way, which is another way of saying they're not suffering. So I want to talk uh, a little bit now about how our minds sometimes complexify this whole process of making effort. So I said back in the beginning, <clears throat> when I said, well, you know, what do you think you're, uh, you know, you're making effort to do in regard to this process here? And I said it had something to do with training the mind to direct attention in a specific way, which is receptive, allowing, kind, has compassion with it, is interested in the present tense, moment to moment to moment. So that's what we're asking the mind to do, really. But now let's talk a little bit about how other things creep into it and how the things that creep into it are really what makes for this being much harder than it might be if we could allow or remind the mind to be really simple. So the other kind of efforts that often crop up in meditation practice is our own idiosyncratic addition to the four efforts that I just described. And of course, when we begin practice, our motives are always kind of mixed because our mind streams are mixed and they're a mix of wholesome and unwholesome things. Uh, there's wisdom in there and there's delusion in there. And so we undertake uh, our journey and, and both the wisdom and delusion are in play even when we're doing practice or trying to practice. And sometimes uh, there can be a conscious or even semi-conscious idea of where we want to go and what we want to accomplish while we're here on retreat. And we want to use the retreat to get there. So there's something in play that's different from just sitting there on your butt and noticing what's going on and keep keeping doing that. And then doing that when you're walking and doing that when you're eating and then just paying attention in a continuous ongoing way. So here's some motivations and agendas that are often carried with us 
whether this is for a whole retreat or for a sitting, and see if any of these resonate with you. To get rid of a particular emotion or emotional pattern. To make ourself different, some, some preferred version in some essential manner. To make yourself different. To attain a particular kind of spiritual experience we've heard or read about. To prove something to ourselves or someone else. To experience pleasantness, uh, bliss, or concentration, and maybe a psychic experience, uh, if possible, (laughs) or at least some interesting lights or something like that. To have my uh, ego and or personality disappear. Get rid of the self, get rid of the self, get rid of the self. Get rid of the ego, get rid of the ego, get rid of the ego, get rid of the ego. The ego doesn't like the ego, the ego wants to get rid of the ego. (laughs) To experience again something from a previous retreat or sitting. To not experience something from a previous retreat or sitting. To be a good yogi, and and great would be better. To be one of the the great ones. So, if you recognize that those are there, like have crept in, they they creep in as a present tense arising, like everything else, right? So the answer to this is to see it, acknowledge it, name it, investigate it, and not act on it, right? Not, not get on board with it. To actually turn it into a meditation object. Because most of these have hindrances in them. So they're, they're hindrances of one type or another. So you can practice and work with them like any other kind of hindrance. Investigate them. And if you don't see those and or you proceed uh, from those kinds of uh, side or additional agendas and goals, you're really complexifying this process, Right? Because you're not just sitting there paying attention to your breath and hearing and you know knowing the arising emotion, feeling the body sensation and recognizing a thought and all the rest of it. You find yourself kind of trying to jury rig the whole thing to create some sort of outcome or to avoid some you know swing toward in some direction that you think is not going to really take you where it should be going. So you have to really abandon this whole idea of what should be happening. 
And in fact, I would say, if the if you have the thought, this shouldn't be happening, or this should be happening, or if only, if only this were happening, or if only this were present, or any of those, then that's like a, a flashing red light that you should pay attention to because it means you've fallen into opposition with things as they actually are. You're saying, I'd like a substitution, please. <laughs> Don't want that one. So that would be aversion. Or do want that one, and that would be uh, craving. Right? So they're hindrances. And there's no blame in having hindrances because, as I uh, pointed out at great length earlier, we all have plenty of them. And that's really the field of practice where you win your liberation, is learning to recognize them and learning to find a wise relationship with them. So the practice uh, goes off kilter only if you don't recognize it and you lose track of it. So, you know, keep it really simple. And you'll see over and over again, uh, if you have the experience where there's an unrecognized preference that's there for you, and you don't see it, and the mind goes ahead and attempts to, to implement it, you know, to get in there and try to control what's happening in an immediate sense, you're going to suffer. That, that's kind of how you know. Are you suffering? <laughs> Are you suffering? So that kind of rigidity causes suffering because it's resisting what's actually happening. And it's attempting to exert a span of control over immediate experience that actually isn't available. And this is one of our fundamental confusions as a human beings is we don't understand what we can control in an immediate sense and what we can't. So there's always agitation going on. Kind of like, get me away from it. I want it like this. Make this happen. No, I don't want that. I don't like that. Time to go offline. And you'll see it for yourself in your mind stream as you as you watch. So the hard part about all this stuff is remembering to let your mind uh, function in a very uh, simple, allowing way, which actually is the seat of liberation and which is an expression of the innate great intelligence that simplest kind of functioning whoever would have guessed that that's really what allows it all to to open up because it's the the basis the base for clear seeing the kind of clear seeing that actually leads to liberation so if you can train your mind to attend like that 
and undertake the discipline to train the mind to be able to attend like that in a consistent kind of way, you have the keys to your own liberation in your hands. So I, I, I read the lament of a discouraged yogi earlier. So I'll read one that's uh, more a modeling of uh, wise attention. I don't know what I'm doing, but maybe that's okay. Just keep the mind in present tense is what to do, they said. Incline the mind to move into a bright, receptive state, letting what is happening express in its own way. Sensations of the simple breath, exactly as they are, provide a place to focus first, to feel what's going on. There's nothing to make happen. Things happen on their own causes and conditions unfolding due to law. In the present moment, things arise and pass away. And if I lose the thread of this, I'll reconnect again. There is no final failure and no final win. Awareness lost, awareness found. Keep coming back again. And while I may be wishing things would straighten out. I'll try to ride awareness even when it bucks. The cure is in the staying with what is happening now and learning how to harmonize no matter what the sound. May the merit of the practice that we do together be a cause and condition of our own liberation and that of all beings everywhere. May it be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.